morning. Welcome to Central Baptist Church. It's good to be here together today. Um, before we get into our time of worship, we have a couple of announcements. The usual ones are on the back of your bulletin, as usual. Um, there are two other things that I want to bring to your attention today. Uh, one of them is going to take a little longer than most announcements, so buckle up. Uh, but first, <laughs> I want to share Lily Dolan, who we prayed for and recognized at, on her graduation, um, has sent us a thank you note. You are a woman after my own heart. Um, and it says, Dear church family, thank you so much for the generous graduation gift. It will be put to good use as I continue my spiritual journey into my college years. God bless, Lily. Amen. I will try to remember to put that on the bulletin board so you can look at it. Um, so the other thing we need to talk about, we could have probably talked about in a family dinner, except the timing wasn't quite right. And our next family dinner is my birthday party, so we're not going to talk about business that day. Um, we are about to start a capital campaign. If you are here in this building, you know that this church building, the church itself, is over 220 years old. Um, this building is a Civil War era building. It is beautiful, it's historic, and um, it is a place that God has given this congregation, which means that it's a resource that we have, um, that we're responsible to steward. So different churches have different setups, but this is ours. We didn't buy this building. Um, we inherited it. We don't have to pay a mortgage on it, which is great, unlike some, uh, some churches. So, but we do need to take care of it. And as you know, we're working on um, upgrading the kitchen. Our dear sister Kathleen Bond um, bequeathed a generous amount of money to our church to help with that project, but it's a big project, and it's going to cost more than what we took in. Now, I need to explain a little bit about capital campaigns. <laughs> um, I am, as you know, a pastor's kid, and my dad is the human <laughs> who planted Charlton Baptist Church. And we have some connections besides me with Charlton Baptist Church. And when that church started, um, they didn't have a building, and they met at the Masonic Home, and then they met at the Charlton Grange Hall, and um, when they were ready to have a building, they had more people in their congregation than we do, but most of the people were on the same basic economic level that we are here. So I'm not I have been at churches that are big and have lots of money, and the people in them have lots of money, and they have capital campaigns, and it's a whole different dynamic. This is a much greater faith strengthening exercise. The point of a capital campaign is to raise money for the physical aspect of our church. And it is over and above a tithe. It is not the same thing as a tithe. It isn't, well, I've been tithing and now I'm going to give some of my tithe to the general fund and some of it to the building. No, it's a separate thing. And this is biblical. This happens in um, a few different notable stories in the Bible. The first one is in Exodus when the people come out of Egypt and God wants them to build this tabernacle. 
he is going to, in Leviticus through Deuteronomy, he's going to give them guidelines for how much, for their tithe, for how much money they need to continually give to the priests to make sure that the worship is functioning. But for the building of the tent, the tabernacle, and then later for the building of the temple, and then later for the rebuilding of the temple, um, God and the human leaders that he puts in place call the people to say, okay, this is a different thing. We're working on this structure. So this is scary. We are in a um, time of economic uncertainty in our nation. Um, everything is super expensive. And those of us that are giving here, which should be all of us, hopefully, um, it, we're already stretched pretty thin. We have not only our tithe to our church, but we have our own lives that we're trying to support. If God gave us this building, which I believe he did, and if he wants us to minister here, which since he gave us the building, I think he does, <laughs> he is one way or another going to provide for this. But this type of activity in the Bible and now and in other churches that do this is always a step of faith. It is a sacrifice. It is not intended to be this, well, if we can afford it or um, because we still need money to, to run the operations of this church. We still need it. And, but if we don't set up a capital fund, what will happen is we are going to still need to do projects on this building. We've already done a bunch. We, wonderful Tom Dolan redid our stairs for us, and um, we've, we've fixed some of the pews, and these things are going to need to keep happening. Not just the kitchen, but other things beyond this. And so if we don't have a separate fund to take care of those projects, we will end up dipping into our general fund anyway. And that is not good sustainably for the life of this church. So, um, and we're also going, because it's an exercise of faith, we are not going to try to rely on, let's get the church together and have a rummage sale. Let's bring all our old junk in <laughs> and give that to, give our old junk to God. If you want, to come up with creative ways to do a fundraiser yourself, or if you want to talk to people in the congregation and say, hey, let's do something together to contribute to, to in addition, contribute to our capital fund, that's great. Be creative. Have fun with it. It's not going to be a church-sponsored, church-held thing. So if you are, if you decide to have a yard sale at your house and you say, everything that I sell at this yard sale, all the money that I take, I'm going to give to the church capital fund. But don't say this yard sale is a, is a Central Baptist Church capital fund yard sale. Please. Does that make sense? Um, I, I, yeah, right. You can do it for, you can give it to the church. That's part of your sacrifice um, and part of your efforts. But it's not a church-sponsored function. Okay, so um, I actually think this is a really great opportunity. We are going to be amazed by what God does. I want to also, I'm going to talk to the camera right now. Some of you either are not 
physically in the area where you could come worship with us in person, or some of you are not yet comfortable to, to worship in a church building with other people in person, but you attend worship with us every week. I don't want the people here to say, oh good, we have online people, they'll take care of this. This is for all of us. But I want to challenge you, if you are online worshiping with us on any kind of regular basis, and you think that the work that this church is doing is important, um, I want to challenge you specifically to be part of this capital campaign project. Our church meets in, a, in an already economically challenged area. None of us are really wealthy here. We don't have extra money. So if you feel like God is putting it on your heart to be part of this congregation in giving, this would be a great way to do it. So if you're going to give to the capital fund, people online and everybody here, um, make a separate donation right on the memo line, Ezra's Purse, that's, a, that's our nickname for this capital fund, and um, that's, that is how we're going to do this. And if you have questions about this afterwards, you can talk to me about it. We'll be talking about it on and on because we don't want to forget. We, we, need to, we need to be doing this. Um, I, wanna, I also want to say one more thing before we move on. I will not knowingly ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. So Paul and I are committing to also give over and above our tithe to participate in this project. I don't put myself on a different level from everybody else. Um, I have this particular role in this church but we're all part of this same church body, and I will not ask other people to do something that I won't do. Um, so I'm here with you. And it's faith-stretching for me, too, but I, I'm excited to see what God is, is going to do about this. Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking my job, taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, 
Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody today? A little warm? I have to tell you, was it maybe Wednesday? Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this one, Jen. Help. <laughs> um, so I read a whole bunch more, and I prayed a whole bunch more, and I I looked at the last part, chapter, or verse 13, and it clicked. So, anybody know what this is? It's a fork. It might be easier to see the picture. Does that make it easier to tell what it is? Because it's really hard to tell sometimes. This is a fork. Has anyone ever used a fork before? Maybe I should say, is, has anybody never used a fork before? Okay, so they're really wonderful tools, aren't they? Sure, they can be. <laughs> um, they're not so useful for stabbing things too well because they're not usually sharp enough and the, the little points aren't deep enough to really stick into things. Have you ever tried to eat tomato soup? with one of these? It doesn't work, does it? The soup just kind of falls out of the edges. Even though it does have a belly there, it takes forever to get enough soup into your mouth. Of course, personally, I just drink my tomato soup, so I don't have to worry about a spoon or a fork or a fork. But um, they're actually really hard to find at the moment, except at my school. We have them by the boatload at my school except my school is not available to me at the moment. But uh, I see a head shake, and you use these at school too? Yeah, they're so much fun, aren't they? People do all kinds of crazy things. Um, Katie said, oh, are you going to make Batman out of it? I'm like, make Batman? I guess if you take the two middle ones and bend them, you get Batman. I don't know. Anyway, it made me think about serving. You can't serve two masters. This fork tries too hard to be a fork and a spoon, and it doesn't do either one very well, does it? No. And that's what happens when we try to serve two gods, or two people, or two things. We can't do either of them very well. And our scripture kind of talks about that, kind of in an interesting way. The, the shrewd manager was given a responsibility, but he didn't do so well with it. He kind of was keeping some for himself, maybe, and charging extra to other people. We're not exactly sure how, at least I'm not exactly sure, maybe you are, 
how he came to be able to say, okay, we'll cut your bill, whether that was his profit that was, he was cutting off the top or whether he was just really cheating his boss. I'm not sure. Uh, I couldn't get a conclusive answer from anybody. But he was trying to be a sport. He was trying to have it bo both ways. And it actually says in here, well, treat your corrupt friends pretty well so that they'll take care of you later, which I don't think is the way God wants us to be. I think that sports can be useful. And I think God has given us resources to use, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And I think that's kind of where the story is going. Um, if we have been blessed, we need to share that blessing. And that's how we're going to save up a, a treasure that won't be taken away. Um, one of the things I saw was a, a quote, I can't remember who actually said it now, but it says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Who is it? Jim Elliott, that's right. I meant to write it down, and it's like, yes, God has given us a lot of things. He's given us a lot of responsibility over those things. But it's our job to share those things. Because we can't take those things with us. When we're dead and buried, those things aren't going to heaven with us. But all the things that we do that help other people become better people, the people that we help feed or shelter or care for, those are the things that are going to go with us. So, are you a spork? Are you a fork? Are you a spoon? It doesn't matter as long as you're doing what God has in mind for you to do. God has blessed you so that you can bless others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us in many, many ways. Help us not to get caught up in this is mine and I'm going to use it the way I want to use it and forget that it really does belong to you. And you've given us a, a challenge, a responsibility to use it to bring you honor and glory. Lord, we know we can't take it with us. We know it in our hearts. But somehow in our minds, we forget about that. And we try to amass more and more and more. And we forget to give to those in need. We forget to use our gifts to bring others to you. That's where our reward is. So help us to remember to put you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word. Today's is a hard one. Uh, I ask for your help in my speaking and in our listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, one of you reminded me, I already knew this, but reminded me that you do not like parables because sometimes they're hard to understand. And I'm going to tell you, I do not like this parable. I've encountered this parable throughout my life because, as you know, I was raised in a church and I accepted Jesus into my heart at age four, and so 
I've had a lot of years to kind of read the Bible and encounter challenging passages, but this one is one of the most challenging to me. Um, and so sometimes Barb is like, why did you pick this passage? And this week we both were like that. Um, <laughs> but I don't believe in shying away from scripture that's hard to interpret because, um, because it's there. And so sometimes, you know, it's worth just put, saying, I don't get it, I'm going to put it on the back burner. But we're in a series on the parables of Luke, and this parable is only in Luke, not in any of the other Gospels, and so we need to take some time looking at it. Um, but this is, I do take this seriously because there are some pretty strong words in the Bible about teachers and how teachers of the word have a, an extra responsibility uh, before God, and therefore there's some extra cautions um, if you're if you're flippant with the word or if you're not being careful to interpret it well. So I'm going to say I've worked on this parable all week, not to mention all the other times in my life I've looked at it, and I've prayed about it, and I still don't really get it. <laughs> so this is my best effort, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually make this sermon a little less interactive than sometimes because I am not as clear on this particular passage um, and I could get derailed very easily if there's a ton of feedback. Um, but I am going to invite you into this process. If nothing else, this will be an exercise in ways to approach challenging passages in the Bible that are really hard to understand. Okay, so, you guys in for this? All right, okay. A little bit about that challenging things in the Bible. Um, here's a couple things to notice about this at the beginning. Some principles about Bible reading when you come to a challenging passage. First thing, it is okay if you don't understand everything in the Bible the first time or even the 85th time. It's okay. You can go to seminary and still not get it. And if you don't, it's probably better to say that than to try to make something up and pretend that you know what you're talking about. So um, it is okay to still have questions about a passage in the Bible even when you do start to understand it. It's, it can be a little bit tempting if you start to understand it to be like, oh, now I totally get it, and then get stuck on that interpretation and become unable to see the bigger picture. So it's okay to still have questions. In fact, it's kind of good, even passages that you're really familiar with that you think you understand backwards, forwards, upside down, and inside out, um, to still ask questions about it because the Bible is really deep, and there are layers. Um, even, here's a third principle, even if you don't understand something in the Bible or, and or, you don't like what you think it's saying, don't let that stop you from reading the Bible. Just keep reading it. Push through it. If you can't deal with this passage right now, put it aside. Keep reading. And probably most important, 
for all of us. Be humble before the word of God and be persistent. Okay, having said all this, here's the one piece of interaction that I'm going to ask for. Who wants to summarize today's parable? <laughs> okay, you can't serve two masters is the teaching at the end, but what happens in the parable? Okay, yeah, something like that. Somebody cheats and is rewarded. Okay, monkey see, monkey do. The guy who's in charge rewards the guy who's not in charge for being a jerk face. <laughs> How to get fired from your job, okay? Okay, I like it. So, yes, so he negotiates deals so that his boss gets something instead of nothing. He is, yes, he was trying to make a deal so, so that when he gets fired, those people would owe him favors. Okay, I'm going to try my hand at summarizing this. I like, this is actually really good, but this is also why I'm not going to do too much more interaction today because I will get sidetracked on all these different things. So Jesus, first thing we need, to, we're ne I'm going to incorporate the frame story in this. Um, Jesus is telling a parable to his disciples. We don't actually, there is no context for before this. Right before this in Luke is the parable of the prodigal. And so we don't, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is telling this to his disciples. We don't know if it's the same day, we don't know if it's right after, or if it's like sometime later, and now we're in a new scene, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. But Luke always tells us who Jesus is telling the parable to. So that's important to know. Anyway, so he's telling the parable to his disciples, and in the parable, there's a rich guy, and he has a steward, or a manager, or basically kind of an accountant, and this guy has been wasting the master's possessions. I looked this up in a couple different translations to make sure that that's what he's doing. It doesn't say he's stealing it or he's hoarding it. He, it says he's wasting it. We don't know what that means, though. We don't know how he's wasting it. Jesus doesn't give us that info. The boss finds out, runs an audit, and tells the accountant he's fired. The accountant knows he's only good at his desk job, and not at manual work, and he's, not, he's too proud to beg. He's not going to beg. So he cuts down the amount on, we are told, about two of the invoices to two of his master's big accounts. So they will give him a place to live, or so they'll do favors for him after he gets out, kicked out of his job. And note, he's probably living at his master's house. So this is why um, where he's going to live becomes part of the story. And after he does this, the master says, well played. And then, and then that's the end of the parable, and then Jesus starts talking to his disciples about the parallels between how we handle possessions, physically, physical possessions, worldly wealth, and how we handle spiritual or true riches. And he says, whoever can be trusted with very little 
can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then he challenges them and says, you can't serve both God and money. It's always going to be one or the other. I love Barb's fork illustration. That was inspired. <laughs> spork. Spork. Yeah. You can't, it doesn't work well as either one. You cannot serve God well and serve money well at the same time. You can't do it. But then, so he's like teaching the disciples this whole time, and then it says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus calls them out for valuing things that God detests. So these are the questions, there are a lot of them, that come up for me when I read this passage, every time I read this passage. And I got to tell you, I have not only read this passage, but over the years, and not just this week, I have read commentaries, I have sat in seminary classes that have tried to explain this to me, I've been in Bible studies that have tried to explain this to me. Something's still missing. So these are the questions that I encounter every time I read this. Why is Jesus telling this story? We don't know, because we don't have a frame at the beginning. Just, he's telling the disciples. Why is he telling them? We don't know. Why is he telling the disciples this story? What is it that they need to know from this? Who is the master? Because usually in Jesus' parables, the master or the king or the rich man, except for the foolish rich man, is God. But this guy sounds like maybe he's a little shady. Is Jesus telling us it's okay to use sketchy worldly business practices? Or not only that it's okay, but that we should? Because frankly, churches throughout history seem to have done that in various different ways. And when they do that, it creates an oppressive, ungodly mess. And doesn't Jesus, in this passage, say not to value things that God detests? So is Jesus contradicting himself? or the other parts of scripture? Is Jesus playing fast and loose with his father's reputation? Who is the steward? Usually in Jesus' parable, the servants of the master are, represent in some way God's people. So who's, who is the steward? Also, is Jesus really talking about money here or is money a symbol for something else? When the Pharisees hear about the teaching, and we don't know how they hear it, like were they kind of eavesdropping, or did they hear about it later? We don't know. Why do they sneer at Jesus? What, what is it that they're laughing at about this? Why is this sneer-worthy to them? I don't know. <laughs> but here, here are some um, answers, not necessarily to those specific questions, but some things that we need to that we do know from other parables, from the Bible as a whole, that we need to keep in mind as we look at this. The master, in most of the parables, like I already said, usually represents God, and the servant usually represents Israel, or God's people. And so the question here is, who is in charge? God or money? If 
we're really talking about money. Um, we need to keep in mind, so we need to keep in mind that probably the master is God and probably the servant is some representation of God's people. What we need to know, uh, what we need to keep in mind what we already know about God and about Jesus' relationship with his father. Jesus can't be playing fast and loose with his father's reputation because Jesus loves his father. Throughout the entire Gospel of John, he says, the father and I are one. Everything that the father wants, Jesus wants. Everything that the father says to do, Jesus does, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So God is united. There's no division within God. And God is great, and God is good, and God is love. We also need to keep in mind what we already know about Jesus' ministry and his message. Last year, we, when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, we saw the whole message is about there's a kingdom, God's kingdom. God wants to take over again with his good, righteous, just, loving kingdom, but the powers that in play in the world, which we were nicknaming empire, those things oppose God and God's kingdom. But the whole message is... There's two forces in play. There are two kingdoms or empires or, or um, power structures that are in play that are trying, each one is trying in different ways to be in charge here on earth. So again, who's in charge here? Um, and we've seen this even in the parables of Luke. We haven't necessarily been using those terms, but Jesus is really consistent in his message. Jesus challenges and overturns expectations all the time. That's something we also need to remember. But he is always consistent about it. His end goal is always consistent, which is, his end goal is to help us act and think like kingdom people instead of like people in the world. Which makes it extra important to really dig for what Jesus is trying to say here because it sounds like he's suddenly saying, by the way, in this case, you should actually think like people of the world. So we should probably dig into that. I am going to say, I, I have, like I said, I've read plenty of commentaries on this, and they still all feel like they're not quite there, but there are three um, either commentaries or people that I've interacted with that I have said to me what seem like useful things to shed insight on this parable, and I'm going to share them with you, and we'll keep those in the back of our mind, too. We're going to put them all together. So the first one is Martin Luther, the guy in the 1500s who helped reform the church. And um, he basically, he wrote a really, it's kind of funny. His approach was basically the KISS approach. You guys know what KISS stands for, right? Stupid. <laughs> keep it simple, stupid. That's his approach, although he takes a whole lot of words to say this. But basically, what he says is, don't complicate this parable. Jesus says the accountant has been misbehaving. The accountant's not a good dude. Jesus isn't affirming what the guy does. He's affirming his street smarts. And there's something to this approach. Um, we could just leave the sermon at this point, and it's, we're getting close to time, so you might like me to do that, but I'm not going to... Um, <laughs> Luther is right about this to an extent, but it makes it so we don't notice the layers. And we've already seen that there are layers and layers and layers, and not in 
not only in scripture as a whole, but especially in Jesus' parables. And it kind of um, negates this, you are the, what Jesus says to the Pharisees at the end, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. If all we get from this parable is God's people should have street smarts, we could justify a whole lot of stuff in the name of street smarts that is not godly. So, we can't quite leave it there, but I do think there are commentators who complicate this parable to an extreme by trying to read into, like, what exactly was going, what was the, the manager doing that was so dishonest, and what is really happening here, and that bogs us down and distracts us, and, and we miss, Jesus didn't give us that information, so we don't need it. Another person that helped me with this is a friend of mine named Trey Ferguson. He lives in Florida. We know each other from Twitter, but he also, some of you got to meet him at the pilgrimage retreat if you were there in January. He says, in relation to this parable, money is actually always symbolic. Even our money. It's not really a real thing. We have all agreed that money means this. This is how much of this imaginary stuff that I need to accomplish this thing. But so Jesus is telling this parable, and it's about money, but it's kind of, but even money isn't totally about money. And Trey says, money at the end of the day, no matter what, whether it's in a parable like this or in real life, money is a symbol of power. And so sometimes you have your own power, and sometimes you are adjacent to people with power, like this manager, his boss has money, and so the boss has power. So let's keep that in mind too. The other th person that helps is our British pal, <laughs> N.T. Wright, who, says, who makes the point that whenever Jesus teaches in all four Gospels, not only is he talking about the salvation that he's going to bring and, and justice in general for the world and, and all of these things that we often focus on, but he is also constantly hinting at the fact not only that he's going to go to the cross and die, but also that there is upheaval coming to the people of God, to the Jews. And he's very, very often almost constantly underlying all the other teaching, pointing towards what's going to happen in A.D. 70, which we've talked about here, where the temple gets destroyed. And it has not been rebuilt since then. And so part of what he may, N.T. Wright says, part of what Jesus may be doing with this parable is again pointing to the fact that the kingdom isn't going to look like it has, you guys, and it's not going to look like you thought. He's bringing a new kingdom order. So here's a fact that still is in play today. In this world, and we can see it throughout history, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and throughout history until now, in this world at any given time, God's people may have wealth and power. And then there may be a time period when they don't. 
how will they pivot in the times when they don't? When God's, here's another piece though, when God's people have power, they often mishandle their role because the money and or the power starts to cloud their judgment and they think that they have it because they are God's people. When really, it's just kind of what happens in history and the money and the power is not God. God may have granted it to them for a time, but it's not God. God and the money and the power are not the same thing. And so this parable poses the question, when God's people mix those two things up, and the consequences of that mix-up of trying to serve both God and money start to come down, which is happening in this time that Jesus is talking about, but also maybe it's happening now, will God's people be shrewd or foolish? Who is actually in charge here? Is money in charge? Or, as Trey puts it, is power, just raw power in charge? Or is God in charge, who ultimately owns those resources? The manager in this story was given charge of his boss's resources. Ideally, how this would work is the boss has the resources and the manager. The boss gives the manager authority over the boss's resources. But it sounds like this manager, in some way or other, kind of forgot the boss. And in the process, in a way, the boss's possessions possessed him. And when he gets caught, this particular manager, who's sketchy but not dumb, realizes he's about to become homeless with no income. So he calls in the accounts that have not been paid yet, and he takes the bill, and he removes his cut from the bills. So we don't know if he was illegally charging interest, which, by the way, the Old Testament says don't charge interest. <laughs> so that would have been a thing for Jesus. We don't know if the master was actually, you know, if the, if the accountant is saying, here, I'm going to give this to you at cost, and forget the buffer that the master has on top of it. We don't know exactly who is not getting money here, but in either case, this manager has decided not to get paid. He's having, he has to get paid somehow, and he has chosen not to get paid. But he could have said, I'm going to call in these bills, and I'm going to inflate what's on top. I'm going to inflate the overhead. I'm going to take it, I'm going to take the money, and I'm going to run. He's savvy enough to know that that choice would only work in the short term because he can't, he's not a day laborer and he's not going to beg and unless he has people who are willing to vouch for him or provide him with work later, that money that he takes off the top is going to run out. 
it's not sustainable. So he's smart and says, I will lose out monetarily this time so that I have these relationships with people who are like, oh yeah, that guy did me a favor. I'm happy to do him a favor. Trey says, there comes a time when you need to use your street smarts. You'll need to realize that your relationship with people is all you have at the end of the day, especially if you're not the top dog. If you find yourself in a position to get money because of who you work for, or you just happen to find yourself close enough to power that it looks like you're powerful, you're going to need some people. So we might need to be smart about how we deal with those people. Okay. Try to wrap this up. <laughs> Israel or the people of God are most likely the servant. And Jesus starts telling this parable to the disciples and finishes telling this parable to the Pharisees. The disciples represent the beginning of new Israel. There's 12 of them. They are, there are intentionally 12 main disciples who are, it's a callback to the 12 tribes and those brothers that, were the heads of those tribes. The Pharisees represent old order Israel. In both cases, Jesus is kind of giving these guys a heads up. Don't be a scammer servant like this manager. Don't waste what you've been given like this manager, but do be smart like this manager. Be savvy. Remember that whatever money or whatever power you have ultimately comes from God, but you don't need it to stay in God's good graces. Don't take the money and the power for granted. And don't put yourself in a position where it is in charge. Cultivate good connections, not just with each other, but with even the people of the world. This is probably the craziest thing that Jesus is saying in this parable. He is not asking the disciples to compromise the kingdom values that he's been trying to instill in them for however long he's been doing this ministry at this point. But the people of the world don't have the kingdom values. So be willing to be gracious to them. Cut them some slack. The debt is not their debt to you. It's their debt to God. So be willing to call in the debt to God. If you're the accountant, you can present the way of the kingdom to people, but you do not need to charge interest on top of that. This is the warning to the disciples at the beginning of their inauguration of new Israel, but it's also an invitation to the Pharisees to redirect how they have been behaving. It's kind of like Jesus is like, well, this parable wasn't really for you guys, but since you asked, here you go. How were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were maybe kind of like this steward. They had been wasting the master's resources. They had been charging interest. They had been placing impossible, impossible moral burdens and probably some financial advantage taking on other people. N.T. Wright says, this parable advises us to sit light to the extra regulations which we impose on one another, not least in the church, which are over and above the gospel itself. The church passes through turbulent times and frequently needs to reassess what matters 
and what doesn't. So what's the money in this story? Well, it's money. It's worldly resources. It's also, apparently, worldly power. Sometimes, God's people are put in a position to have worldly power. In this country, Christians have had worldly power for a long time. And some of how Christians have used that power in our history has been really, really good. And some of it has really not been good because it has gotten mixed up with power, just raw power. God has been taken out of the equation, but we, but we put God's name on it, so it's hard to tell. And there's, we have a mixed bag history. And some of what God's people have done here has been very good stewardship, and some of it has been wasteful of the power and the resources that God allowed us to have. I want to challenge us to consider that in spite of all the crazy things that are happening in our country right now, Christians have not lost power to the extent that we think. However, we could. And so the question isn't, what do we do to retain our power? That could have been what the steward tried to do, but it isn't. How do we respond intelligently? Because power and money are not guaranteed to God's people, except that our power is in God himself. And whether we are being persecuted or whether we are the ones who have most of the say, God is the one who's in control and God is the one in charge, and money and power should never be. So, how are we responding? Some Christians in this country are jumping ship entirely. They're continuing to claim Jesus' name, but they are actively affirming ungodliness. And I think here we are aware of where that happens. But some of us in churches more like ours double down, and we try to drag the entire nation back to a past which we can't, first of all, but also that past was more complicated and more of a mixed bag than some of us remember or than we maybe, maybe even understand. Both of these approaches are ways of trying to hang on to power. Either I can't, I can't hang on to the power that I had before, and so I'm just going to go where the power is whether it's godly or not, or we're losing power and we've got to try to hang on to it because that is the only possible way God can work here. That's bogus. The, the manager in Jesus' parable is shady but smart. Jesus is using an unlikely character, and an unrighteous character even, to startle his people into examining how we handle the power that we have in the world. Ultimately, God is the boss. God is the one in charge. Power is his, but it isn't him, and it can be wasted. At the time Jesus told this story, things were changing for the Jews and how they and Rome would relate to each other. Things were also changing in the dynamics between kingdom and empire. And persecution came to the church really, really early. And it got worse, actually, before it got better. Things are changing in the church in this country, too. And... Things are changing in our country as a whole. How are we going to handle it? Well, here's something to keep in mind. 
Whenever the kingdom advances, the empire ups its game. We gotta be real about this. We're not always gonna be top dog because there are forces that are opposed to the kingdom of God. But don't get caught off guard. Hold loosely to power. Honestly, it doesn't matter really because God ultimately has it and we are his and he is the one holding us. We do not have to be, we, we need to do the work of God that we can in the systems of the world while we can, but we don't have to hang on to those and we don't have to be anxious when we don't have that voice anymore or that control anymore or that authority that we thought we had. Hold power loosely, hang on to God, and treat people well. This is just another way, really, of Jesus saying, love God, love your neighbor. The power we have had as Christians in this nation was never ours to begin with. So we stand firm in our relationship to our boss, clear in the kingdom perspective he has given us, but compassionate and gentle with the people of this world. Not just so we can witness to them and they can experience, and not just so, even though this is a big one, they can experience Jesus for themselves. We want them to experience that. That's the probably number one reason to be compassionate. But also, it's not terrible to hope that those people will see at the end of the day, these Christians treated me well. And right now things are not going so great for Christians, but I'm going to have compassion on them because they did right by me. It is okay to operate under that perspective too. Not to compromise, but to treat people well. We can't serve God and try to hang on to our power because God is the one that has the true power. When there is upheaval in the church or the world, the answer is not to get scared, or not to get angry, not even to fight harder, not to punish more. The boss didn't do that. The boss let the religiously powerful and the politically powerful hang him up on a cross. The answer is to be shrewd and savvy in our relationships with people, both in the church and the world, in a way that is generous and forgiving and wise. And maybe when all is said and done, the master won't only commend us because we have acted shrewdly, but will even say, well done, my good and faithful servant.